everyone. Welcome back to Central American Voices. This is Susan Garcia. Hola, bienvenidos a Voces Centroamericanas. Mi nombre es Alejandra Quiroz. Le agradecemos por sintonizarnos una vez más. So on today's episode, we talk about the role of shame and the label of alcoholism in our communities with Jessica Hopper, who is here to talk about her experience and tell us her story. Hi, Jessica. Please tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Jessica Hoppe. I'm a New York City-based writer and creator of Nueva York. Uh, I'm Central American. My mother's from Honduras. My father's from Ecuador. And I've been writing and um, pursuing activism for 15 years in the city. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Jessica, for being with us today. Um, how do you find out you were alcoholic? Just to start with the background story right there. Yeah. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I was just writing about that and taking it all out of my story. So um, it was very... <sighs> I think that it's really sort of difficult for people to understand. It's kind of incomprehensible that someone would not have a sense that they're alcoholic or their relationship to alcohol is becoming, um, that a dependency is developing. But I have to honestly say I had no idea. And that has a lot to do with the fact that I think that most of us don't understand how much we should be drinking or how much is too much and and basic principles like that mm. um but more than that because i think you know generally people drink more than they should be drinking that's pretty much everybody it's just so prevalent in our culture um not everybody has an unhealthy relationship and dependency to alcohol the fact is that alcohol and various you know drugs, substances are so addictive that if any person had enough of it on a consistent basis, anybody could develop a dependency. However, more people are prone um, and also people, some people are more sensitive in the absorption of um, what's happening in the world, trauma and how they move mm -hmm. through life. Mm -hmm. So for a little recently, I became sort of obsessed with how did this happen to me? You know, like your question, like, how did you find out? Um, what actually happened was um, I had had a fight with my boyfriend. Um, my boyfriend was struggling with addiction and that I knew right away that I could see clear as day. I was like, what the fuck is happening to you? <laughs> and right. like, um, It was very scary. The consequences became really, um, really dire for me quickly. And um, I was really scared. So we had gone to a point where I had moved out of the house. Everyone said, well, he's not going to change unless, you know, you're you're enabling him. You got to leave him so he'll change. So I, I told him I was going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, things escalated at the house when I was not there. We had a fight. He disappeared. I went out with my girlfriend to my happy hour spot where I knew the bartenders, where they knew me well. And um, and I drank. Um, I drank a lot. I was drinking wine that night. And I remember one of my other friends coming. I remember having a fight with them. And at a certain point in the evening, I don't remember anything. Um, according to my my banking. I went to another place. I bought two more glasses of wine. I don't know if 
I bought them just for me. If I bought them for me and somebody else, I got into an Uber. Um, that Uber took me to, uh, I guess I was trying to go back to my apartment in Brooklyn that I shared with this motherfucker to fuck him up, which was, you know, def- definitely what I was trying to do. Um, <laughs> and um, I didn't make it there. Uh, the taxi, the Uber driver kicked me out on the West Side Highway. And oh, wow. at that point, wow. the Whitney Museum was just being built and they had this beautiful like all glass you know building with Mm -hmm. these like long white steps and it was the middle of the summer and people were lounging there you know enjoying the evening was a beautiful night and um this woman was sitting there with her friend and she saw me trying to crawl across the west side highway and she was like this fucking girl is gonna get killed and she pulled me off she pulled me off and um and she saved my life and she tried to get my name and she said I was just, you know, inconsolable. I was crying and screaming and um at one point I fell right on my face. I she tried to get my phone so that she could call me another Uber. She she tried to do that and she got my name. Mm-hmm. That taxi driver came back, she said, around like 15 minutes later and said I was being such an asshole. He got rid of me somewhere near Bowling Green. So Bowling Green stop is like pretty much at the tip of of the island it's city. Far from- <laughs> yeah, it's really fucking yeah. far. So I was nowhere ne- where I needed to be. Um, and he said he thought he saw some people um, helping me. The next morning, I woke up in my bed in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, no one was in the house. I had all my belongings except my phone. Um, and I left the house and I went to my friend's house, a loft. And by friend, I mean my other ex. Um, <laughs> yeah. He was traveling. And uh, I locked myself in his loft with like... Um, you know, with a bottle of Belvedere and I didn't leave. I didn't know what had happened. Um, I right. knew something, like I knew in my bones something had happened. I didn't know what. A week later, that woman who saved my life, she found me on Instagram. And she was like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're alive. I thought you died. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And so <gasps> she said, um, this is my number if you want to know what happened. You know, you can you can ask me any anything. And I was she's like, Do you want to know more? And I was like, "Uh, no, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so I talked to her, you know, I talked to her and um and she told me everything and and um you know it was the most outrageous story I'd ever heard, but I knew like right away it was absolutely true. I knew I I I knew I had done all of those things, you know, even though I could never imagine myself doing them. I knew I did. I knew. Right. Um, and yeah, as cheesy as it may sound, I definitely just, I had this physical, emotional, like I just had this sort of like an enlightened moment of enlightenment, you know, like my mind, body, my soul, my spirit, like I, everything knew this was true. And like, at the end of our conversation, mm-hmm. she said, you know, look, I say this with absolutely no judgment, but if you ever have questions about alcohol, 
My mom has been in AA for 30 years. You know, you can always mm. ask me. And I was like, oh, I was just like, I was just gutted, you know, just gutted. Yeah. Like I knew I was shivering. Like it was the middle of the summer and I was shivering cold. Like I just knew, I knew this was it. And then, and then you know, there's this grace that comes when you, you know that your life has been saved when you have saved or you've been saved or survived something. Um, mm -hmm. It is completely, uh, it's a full, full, full awakening. So now I'm in a different um, cycle of this moment where like someone has showed some kind of like some kind of kindness about something that I always had in this particular category of my mind right and we're like mm -hmm. alcohol very good super fun very glamorous everyone yeah. does it it's awesome and then you have this other other category where like alcoholic just adding that i see makes it a whole nother thing that has right. nothing to do with me you know and so holding those two ideas together and then associating them with myself um, was probably the most powerful thing that, I, that I've ever had to do in my entire life. And I decided, you know, my life was saved and I, I can't turn my back on that, you know, if I didn't do yeah. something. But I was really terrified. So I, I told the only people that I believed I would listen to my sister, my mother and my therapist. And, um, you know, they freaked out, mm -hmm. not my therapist, but my mom and my sister, you know, my sister was my, both of them were pretty inconsolable, inconsolable, but like the first thing my mom said was, bueno, no aprendiste de mí. Like you didn't get it from me. You didn't learn it from me. Mm. And I was like, no, you know, no, there was never any alcohol in my house. Um, right. I didn't learn from her. She never drank. Mm -hmm. The deeper layer of that was that I did learn it from my family. Um, my father, my mother's father um, died of alcoholism, even though we mm -hmm. all call it diabetes. Um, right. And so she was estranged from him. So it was weird. About a year into my sobriety, he passed away in Honduras. He sort of came here. He had a crazy story too. Um, but um, he went back to Honduras because he wanted to retire there and he felt like he could live a better life. And so he did that and he drank himself to death and he had all kinds of um, different things related to his alcoholism, but no one would ever say that or call it that. Mm. Um, and so we would hear things, we would get news from different people, but they were estranged. And I know that that kills her but when he did die I was already like a year sober and um and we had a big talk and it was one of the first times my mom told me about what it was like to have an alcoholic father so I said to her uh, you know I was just I knew as a child because I had you know different experiences with him but um we never spoke about it and I asked her you know I said mom how does it feel to have a, a father who is an alcoholic and now you have a daughter who is an alcoholic? And she was like, just, you know, no digas eso. Like, I don't think of you that way. And, uh, mm. you know, not you. And, you know, it was my uncle, you know, my, my uncle really suffered, you know, he was like 
siempre callado en la calle and she had to go she was like I always felt bad for him I pull him off the street I drag him off the street no one should no one should ever be that way and suffering that way and she had like le tenía cariño pero también like you know everyone judged people who were like that you know right. uh, but for her in her mind she was like pero mi papá siempre trabajando bien vestido And I was like, you know, she was like, he was like you. And I was like, okay, so, but those different people and me are all alcoholic. And so mm. I want her, you know, and so I, I always tell her, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with that word. And, and I want, I wanted to use it on purpose, mm -hmm. um, not to sort of make it like you have to be something to qualify as to to tell you to take action on something that you feel might be getting out of control but because that for me to to identify that way means something because I understand from the way I was thinking from the way my family was thinking from the way my friends were thinking my peers and what I hear in the greater cultural conversation is that people who present the way that I work so hard to present are not also this other thing. And I want right. to assure everyone that I am all of those things, you know, <laughs> like I am. And so that, that was, that's the greater um, part of this conversation for me, because mm -hmm. first of all, it was so shocking for me to have to get to a point where I almost fucking killed myself for me right. to wake up to, The, and that a stranger tell me, but also I, I can also understand that like nobody was going to tell me, you know, like nobody, like it, it couldn't have been, it's so sad that it took, it took that, but it also, I understand with the lack of information, resources, understanding and everything that we're dealing with as, as women of color you know, that was the mm -hmm. last thing that I was going to like delve into. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't see my life without alcohol. I really mm -hmm. didn't. You know, when I thought mm -hmm. about all the things that I do, all the things that I liked to do, you know, yeah, it was uh, like alcohol was present in all those things pretty much, you know, mm -hmm. even the work stuff. So actually the work stuff, Totally, you know, like only right. not drinking anymore. Do I do I understand like how much goes down actually like at the cocktail meetup, you know? Right. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And I'm like, shoot, I'm missing out. Um, and I would try to hide it a lot. Like this is all really my coming out party. I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, in my in my private life, this is part of my my work, my conversations with, um, people, you know, my work, like I, I go to AA, so I talk about it there a lot. I talk about it with my friends and my family a lot, but because I feel like it's a symptom of what has been hurting us for so long, you know, right. really that for me. Well, thank you for sharing that and being, and trusting us with that. Um, especially, on this public platform, yeah. um, but something that resonated, I mean, at least with my experience, and I'm sure this isn't unique to just me, but, you know, I also grew up in a house without any alcohol. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but both of my grandfathers um, and a lot of my tios mm-hmm. um, have struggled with alcoholism, are struggling with issues of alcoholism, have recovered. And there's some that have fallen back into alcoholism after mm-hmm. being clean for however amount of years. Um, but we don't ever have it in the house, like ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like having these conversations is not possible in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine when your mom, when you told your mom that, you know, like, what is it, how does it feel to have a daughter that's alcoholic? Like she takes it as a bad label you know like Mm -hmm. it's supposed it's supposed to be a neutral label you know it's like I am an Mm -hmm. alcoholic Mm -hmm. um but she automatically says no don't say that like you can't be that you know she doesn't see like being and it's not just her it's many people like doesn't see being a good person or whatever positive attributes being compatible with alcoholism um Mm -hmm. and I think that um that's something that's one of the bigger struggles right now in our communities mm-hmm. is taking away the stigma from that label yeah i think i i completely agree and i i think that like one of the main things that people say about alcohol right is like that um in in vino veritas which is a lot <laughs> like you right. know it's, you know if you want to know the truth about someone no i promise you that that is not the truth. And when um when I did things and when I when I was drunk, like there was what was true was that I was in pain. You know? Yeah. What, what was true was that I was in I was deeply suffering. And that stuff had to come out. Absolutely. And a lot of times it would come out in anger. And anger is not really like my go-to in my life, you know? And so, yeah, I guess in those ways it can sort of trigger, um, these kinds of outbursts, but because those, those moments, like to someone, like in one of my alcoholic moments, people will remember things that I said to them that have hurt them deeply. And I don't even remember, you know, um, times that I've scared the shit out of my sister, I know that that has affected her deeply and I feel terribly for that. Mm-hmm. However, there's this moment where we have to sort of accept that this is an illness. Um, and it there is a moment where it's not that I'm not accountable for what I did, but when mm-hmm. I did those things, I was outside of my sound mind and body. And so right. you have to understand that what occurred in that inebriation is is um is symptomatic of that you know what I mean so it's really it's not me to be honest it's not Mm -hmm. me um but I'm in so much pain I can't live in my skin I can't touch into moments that trigger a memory of when I was molested or when I was raped or when my parents had that fight or when, you know, I was living with my abusive boyfriend or, or all the other shit and all the stuff that I was born with having already inside my body, which is all my father's right. stuff and all my mother's stuff, which is even more tragic than my own. Not that there's a scale for trans. See how first gen I am? I'm like, my, my parents. <laughs> you're, you're just about to justify. No. Feel it. Feel it. It's valid. It's valid. This was my experience and, um, and it just, it kept me, 
like repressed and it just like calcified, you know, it, it was so deep. And, and as a child, since I'm a child, I grew up just really feeling everything. And I was a real mm. cry baby, as they called me, like La Llorona. And I, a lot of mm. drinking and stuff like that is escapism, you know, from our feelings. It's a numbness to when we feel too mm. much. So when we start labeling children things like Llorona or emotional or mm-hmm. be tough, be strong, all the things that are very common in our culture we're really like labeling those feelings bad and there's no like good yeah. bad feeling you know what i mean so like in my family structure it became so like, i'm the youngest i'm the baby and then i was the most sensitive and i was the most and then my older sister was an athlete she's tough as nails really responsible abe lincoln won't tell a lie kind of deal you know like mm-hmm. really really capable and strong and then my oldest oldest sister um was just yeah a badass too you know so i i think that we're all influenced by the role that we plays in our we play in our families and what that means about how that's perceived by the outside world and because we are so at risk of having things taken away or not being able to be a part of things that America as a society have, have, and the world as a society have labeled what you should be doing, what you should be having, you know, um, you can't come out with stuff like, oh, this one's gonna, you know, get wasted and fuck shit up. Like that's not, you know, you know, that's going to go in the back. Yeah. That's not, you know, like come back when you can like show me your college degree and your beautiful photos online and all this other stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, like I did that stuff when I was little, I was like, my mom would take me into New York and do modeling. And like, I really loved acting and I really loved performance and, And all that stuff went away as as I started to like absorb the world around me and you know, and the experience of growing up what I did was extremely painful. So so yeah, it's just like I think that um that conversation so to begin with like I'm so close to my family. Are you guys close to your family? Yes, extremely, extremely Uh, close. Right? Oh my god. Like, in love with them oh my god yeah <laughs> my mom is like my best friend like my yes, mom is yes. literally my best friend I know I know my mom she's so like she's just yesterday she had like a moment because like I wasn't I was helping her cook and then I walked away and I needed to take a call and she was like Get I'm waiting for you <laughs> <laughs> but like when we're in that rhythm together like I know that that's soothing for her. It's soothing for me. It's such a memory. I was her Mm -hmm. only daughter who would cook with her. But like for a little while, I would cook with her and like, and drink and be drinking and Mm -hmm. then, you know, be hiding it. And so I think I got a, I got an inkling. I got an inkling once when I was hiding these nips of um, those little tiny bottles of vodka Mm -hmm. in my purse. And I went into my sister's bathroom to drink them and I had this one moment of clarity like why am I hiding in my sister's bathroom to drink this right. um mm-hmm. but I just kept it moving you know and and so I, I really wasn't awake to like what was happening in my family the the trauma that my sister was going through and how I, I was taking that on um mm-hmm. you know 
managing things with my mother and my parents being separated there, you know, there since, since we're little, we're always like sort of managing the relationship between our parents. But, but yeah, what, how that relates to alcoholism is that you cannot separate the two. When I, when I talk about my alcoholism it has everything to do with my origins and the fact that much of them are highly toxic, but mm. um, also people who are striving to survive and the biggest freedom from alcoholism, because the first thing to do is put down the substance and then the work really begins mm -hmm. is to break out of a survivalist mentality and tap into sort of the reality of what's happening to you, you know? So like mm -hmm. I tended to live inside my emotions and inside my feelings and my thoughts. And when trauma would come, I would take that as the absolute truth. You know what I mean? About what mm -hmm. it meant about me, um, like my value in this world, meaning, and it was meant to happen to me and that all the world was dangerous at all times, mm -hmm. you know? And then, so I would treat everything that way. And so I, I couldn't, I didn't process it. And then once alcohol was introduced to me in college, I could tell that I was drinking differently than everyone else. It what? just, in college, there's no barometer for like, what's the measuring stick here? Like, it looks like everybody else. It's just, yeah. like, I always needed more faster. Like, yeah. and I was always mm. on my ass first. Like I was in bed first. I wouldn't even remember the evening. By the time I got to New York City and I was partying in New York, um, I was very scared and intimidated of New York. And mm. the scene, like in Boston, everyone was my age and it was very much like student city. And New York was just like so cosmopolitan. It's a I, lot. I, I envy like. I envy that time because I felt like the youngest person in the room. Now I feel like the oldest person, but like everyone seemed older and glamorous and dripping in money. And like, I was working in fashion. Like it was just a replay of high school and, and mm. my hometown, you know, just replay, replay, mm -hmm. like not right. enough. I don't fit in like racism, nepotism, money issues. It's like the works. And then I always right. have some kind of abusive relationship going on always. And then I, I was at a party once and, um, like my mom will be like devastated that I say this, but he was like, come to the bathroom with me. I was like, oh. and we have a serious, we have a problem also like, and I don't think this is just Latinos, but I think specifically for black and brown people to say someone's using drugs is, is very it, that's an accusation you know what i mean that's a mm -hmm. serious accusation yeah. they get a lot of us in jail lose yeah. jobs lose you know custody look they're very serious ramifications for this mm -hmm. white people operate in drug worlds way differently more and totally differently they take a drug like i mean I'm not saying all white people. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I know what you mean. You know what I mean. Systematically. Like, if I had cocaine, I was either going to die immediately or I was going to be hooked and become like, like I'd be on the street in my slippers in like, like, you know, bippity boppity boop like Cinderella. Mm -hmm. And that is not what happened. I had, um, I loved cocaine. Like, I loved it. And, 
I have never said any, I just said that to my mother the other day. I didn't say I loved cocaine, but like we openly talked about it. And she was like, Roja. She just couldn't. She was like, Oh my God. I could not imagine. Oh my God. My mother. Oh Oh my God. Se muere. So I'm sorry, mom, but I think it's important. And I just, yeah. So once I used cocaine, whole nother ball game. And I, I could drink a lot more. In fact, I loved cocaine more, way more than alcohol. I would stop. I would forget about the alcohol and just be doing blow all night. And it was super fun. I was off to the races, but cocaine is so dark. Like it is so dark. It robs you of all your dopamine. Like you're depressed for like, my therapist would be like, you understand that you like, you exhausted all of your natural chemicals for like a week. You won't feel like yourself, you know? So, so yeah, like as a woman in New York city, um, who came from like a very sheltered protective family to this like, you know, glamorous world in New York, trying to work in fashion, trying to date, you know, motherfucker dudes. Yeah. I, I, I was getting it from people like I never even had to touch anything as far as like being in danger. And I had friends who like really protected me. Um, And then my habit became more serious. So I wasn't doing that every night, but I would do it like two, three times a night. And then I would stop. Like I would scare myself. It would terrify me because you can't sleep. Um, You fall into paranoia. And Mm -hmm. while I had other traumatic things going on, like a lot in my relationships, I, that would just drive me to like into really, really dark places. And um, I knew I had to stop that. And then like, you know, I would end up at a place that I didn't want to be. That's not safe for a woman, you know? And like my friend Mm -hmm. would like never give me the number of a dealer. And I eventually did get one. And like, he would go to jail and then he would come back and he'd go to jail and come back. And it was just, yeah, I knew that that, that scared me. And so I stopped right. that, but I continued drinking and, um, yeah. And I continued drinking. And then, and then a couple of years after stopping using cocaine completely, I had my, what they call, what we call rock bottom, um, where I mm. almost died. And prior to that, in the months prior to that, my body was definitely trying to tell me that something was wrong because I was blacking out really fast. Um, right. And so, yeah, your body will signal to you, but, but yeah, it's just an insatiable desire. Like once it starts, it's just, it's, it really is like a demon. It's like a monster, but it's not, not to like scare anyone or, or be like hella spiritual or whatever, because this is a very like technical chemical thing, but it also, Mm -hmm. I think the desire to stop or the desire to acknowledge that this isn't just something that happens to you. Um, once you're in it with a substance, it does happen to you. It does take over. And that was very helpful mm-hmm. for me to understand. However, the only way I couldn't get, have that, my power taken away from me was to not pick it up. So that was my responsibility um, right. to understand that about myself, respect that, hold that, you know, with like kindness, like honor that about me. You know, I am this sensitive, feeling, wonderful, 
powerful woman who does not need any substance, alcohol, drugs to be okay. Like there is nothing that is going to come for me that isn't something I haven't been through already. And once right. I saw it that way, I, I, I was really great. You know, I, I was not really great. I like sobriety is very hard. Like, especially at first, Ooh, I felt like I had no skin on. I was just like, ah, what's this? And then, you know, the consequences of your actions come, you know, everything, finances, relationships, um, work. Like I lost two jobs in sobriety. I lost like, everything, everything. Um, And I myself back up. So it's not like do these things and all your good behavior is going to amount to the life of your dreams. Um, Mm -hmm. Although that is language in a lot of the literature attached to AA. But what it does say is that you will certainly discover the aspects of yourself that are so capable and enough if you, if you, Take the wave, you know, if you ride the feeling, if you stay in your mind and body, it is so much easier than having to escape, go through that physical and mental torture because that's what drugs and alcohol do do. Um, they're poison. <laughs> so like we, the same shit that's in a bottle is literally what we put in our cars and in our airplanes. That's really, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, it's a very real fact. So mm-hmm. once we understand those things, and I think for me, I had to start having respect for myself and my body and my life. So it makes a lot of sense that, you know, the thing that woke me up was that, like, I want you to understand that when you're in this state, you have no respect for yourself or your life. Like, do you mm-hmm. want to die? And I was like, oh, fuck. No, I actually don't, you know, want to right. die. And mm-hmm. I would like to yeah. try and build some self-respect and care for myself. And that's what I've been doing since. Yeah. You have been. Um, yes. Um, you know, like, that's amazing how you were able to overcome and still uh, to this day. And, you know, um, I don't know if you want to share any um, uh, messages to those who are experiencing right now who can who like you you know thought that you couldn't see your life without um alcohol Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah I do because like the other day um I've been struggling during COVID because all of the ways that you're taught to get sober which is like don't isolate show up to a meeting you know like you know be around people don't stay you know don't stay gone stay in the mix you know all that Mm -hmm. stuff is gone you know the way that we survive is to leave each other alone right now but you can still call and people are trying to make it work and and I was just really feeling like very resentful you know like I had a lot of things going on and like the week everything got shut down was like literally the week I was waiting on so much news that I've been working so hard for and like it's all gone Mm. it's totally like that Right. And it tends to make me resentful towards the work that I do to stay healthy. Um, yeah. And so I think, and so I, I finally like, you know, I gave in, like you suffer enough, you give in, you're like, okay, I'm done suffering. Ugh. And so right. 
you do something and I will, and I had gotten back into the swing of my program and connected to people that I really love and I was feeling really good. And, um, my sister, it was like that day that was like 60 degrees last week. And mm -hmm. I came downstairs and my sister had ordered food and all that. And we were going to have a nice dinner. And I was feeling really lit because I got all the medicine from my group. And and so I just mm -hmm. like went downstairs and my all, my whole family's outside on the on the pad, on the porch, whatever, um, enjoying the outside. And we were all talking about how the last time we were together, we were in Menorca and it was so beautiful. And, you know, oh, my God. And my niece says something adorable about she misses the beach. <laughs> I noticed mm -hmm. that they're all holding um, those stemless wine glasses. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, they're drinking wine. You know, I, I think to myself and like, so this is the most interesting part because in so many instances of my life, alcohol appears in a completely harmless way. Everyone in my family, that bottle of white wine, by the way. So this is how you can tell I'm an alcoholic because I know exactly how much alcohol is in this house and where it is. A, for my safety, and B, because I have an obsessive thinking when it comes to it, which is like I hold those two, two ideas that like alcohol is the best thing in the world that I can have and oh my mm -hmm. God, alcohol is my ruin if I ever touch it again. And so I have to be yeah. honest about the way that I think about it. I, I feel both of those ways about it. You know what I mean? Like it's not one way. Like I haven't decided it's evil. And obviously I have... I have experiences with people in my life who imbibe totally, quote, normally, quote, healthfully, mm -hmm. you know? So they're all enjoying it. And it's not a matter of the, like, I want to drink it too. It's that I start to begin that there's something wrong with me. That's what I start to feel yeah. in my mind, you know? I'm like, well, they can all do it. This is my fucking family. Like, you know, like, why am I different from them? Why is it like this for me? Right. Like, maybe I can. And so that kind of separate thinking is something that's really innate to immigrant people, to brown people, black and brown people, um, and to a girl who's always really been desperate to please her family, take care of her family, show up in the world in a certain way. And that includes being able to do everything, not just like everybody else, but, but better. Because that's what we always right. have to be better than everybody else so that we can get the men, the equal, the same. You know what I mean? Like right. I have to fail so high just to be up on like where you started. So right. yeah, it's a bit of like, it's just this sort of like knock. And then the, the, the deeper layer of that is that I begin to believe that, that I am different from my family and, and every family member is different. And trust me, everyone's got their little sucosita and and I'm almost lucky that this is my thing because it's so, um, it's so visible. It's so chaotic. Mm -hmm. It's so in your face. Like when someone's wasted like that, you know, trying to run across the street or screaming and yelling or hitting someone, which is a very big part of my family history, mm -hmm. um, you can't deny it, you know, right. you can't deny it. And mm -hmm. so when you have someone like my mother who associates everything to do with alcoholism, with those things, you know, with anger, abandonment, abuse physical harm, you know, um, and then put, and then 
and then transferring that onto her daughter. There must be some major dissonance there. You know what I mean? Like, because I am her daughter who is in her eyes, perfect, que linda, que buena, que, you know, you're always doing the right thing, like this kind of thing. And so I really try to embrace the ways that we show up as like being perfect, 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 you know, A plus immigrants. Um, I'm more interested in our humanity. I'm more interested in the equity of having flaws, of sometimes being the bad guy, of making mistakes, of the fact that we all hurt each other. We all Mm -hmm. hurt each other. It's not, no human being is going to get by not having hurt someone. We do. And I think the quicker we get, we get okay with that, with showing all of it, you know, the scars, the mistakes, all of it. You know, I don't just need, I don't need to present my report card to you. Like I can say, right. like, I'm a 37 year old woman. Like I've tried cocaine. I've done really great things. I've done really bad things. I've, I've been super, super hurt by people. And I'm sure well, I'm, I know that I've hurt others too. And so the best right. thing I can do is accept all of that, that full bag of myself and say, okay, I'm aware of these things. This is a flaw of mine. This is a sensitivity of mine. And I can tell people, hey, this is a sensitivity of mine. Like when I, you know, just please be cognizant of that. And they can tell me and I can, I can know like, okay, when I start drinking, one of the best rules, if you're thinking about it, all I want to tell people who are, sort of questioning whether or not they have a a relationship with alcohol that might not be serving them. If you're Mm -hmm. starting to think that way, just follow that feeling, follow that thought gently, you know, and Mm -hmm. then you don't have to do anything. Just like when it shows up, just take a moment, just pause. Like the most powerful thing that I learned was a fucking pause that when someone sends me an annoying text and I want to like grab my phone and like, no, I wait. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that's the same thing. The moment you get an inkling where like, whether you're triggered or whether it's like, or like, it's like, okay, so you want to celebrate something. You're feeling good, right? Feel good. You know what I mean? Pause before you need to take action on that instinct that we have to feel better, to feel best, to feel most, because on the other side of that, if it involves drug and drugs and alcohol is a massive spike in depression because all of these substances are depressants. So if we start right. to acclimate more to where our good feelings like live and be like, oh, this feels really good. Just me, you know, me, mm-hmm. and my beautiful life and my beautiful family where I have enough food, I have my health. And you know what I mean? All right. of the loveliness and like the demonization of the word. Okay. Like, yeah, being okay is great. Being like, no, <laughs> knowing mm-hmm. like no one's coming for you is fucking great. Especially as us, especially as Central Americans. Mm-hmm. I think right. The one of the most powerful things my mom has said to me recently, it because my mom was really sick when we were little. 
Um, and my mm-hmm. sister was gone to school and I stayed home with her and she was having a lot of uh, suicidal ideation at the time. And she was trying to figure it out. But as a Central American woman, um, you know, she mm. had a couple of things. She had a language barrier. She couldn't communicate well with the doctors. There was a lot of issues since the moment she'd been here. So she was like determined to learn the language and like, you know, she was very, very um, stubbornly courageous woman. So she was like, I so my relationship with her was always this deep wish that that she would kind of wake up to some of this work and some of the trauma and pain she was holding and take care of herself you know not just in like the way like she wants to be on the keto diet and you know she wants to get a new car and things like that and she wants to be a good grandmother which she is she's wonderful and she's a wonderful mother Mm -hmm. too but um she started reading this book and she was like, Jesse, I read in this book that like, did you know that like, that that we're born with trauma? And she was like, I was thinking mm. back on the time when like, I had you and, and Carlita and like, your dad was going through so much and I was going to, through so much. And like, we, we, we put that inside you. I know. And I was like, the right. digo, like, I just. I couldn't believe that she said that to me, you know, I I couldn't believe that she she said that because I was born feeling it. And I just loved her so much for that. And the way that Carla and I and my other sister have, have grown into that kind of what we've been carrying. And I know that anyone who's on this channel, who's Central American, Trust me, you're carrying it, and it's okay. And um, and maybe many of you are drinking over it, and maybe some of you are doing drugs over it. And I think that I I am not here to judge you, and nobody should be judging you. Um, we all have different responses to um what we're carrying and and what we're coping with currently in the world. So. Yeah, I know what it looks like to um to have that moment of grace and to understand more and have the resources and the access to things that can help me get better and ultimately save my life. My cousin right. just passed away um 3 days ago. And I have to say that's that is definitely because you know, he didn't not in the same way. Mm-hmm. So what I will say is, you know, don't do anything. Ask ask the questions. The next time you want to have a drink or a drug, just ask yourself. When that instinct comes, just go, hmm, why, why do I want this? You know? And right. then if you have one and you want another, be like, hmm, why do I want this? Because I'm sure, at least for me, it was something something was triggering a feeling that told me that I needed it in order to be, to feel better or worse. Um, Like if I was feeling bad, I needed to feel all the way bad. And if I was feeling good, I needed to feel ecstatic. And now where I live, like in I'm I'm pretty feeling as it is. I don't, I've learned I don't. 
Yeah. So that's all I'd say. You don't have to do anything right away. You will definitely feel it. And I think the best thing to do is start with questions. It's literally like that woman said to me after she saved my life, like, if you ever have any questions, please ask me. And I'm sure that like my information, my email or my contact or my Instagram, whatever will be on here. I'm very good at DMing people back. Um, and um, I'm so appreciative for people who actually like listen to anything I have to fucking say. So thank you. And if this is something that you want to ask me, I'm so happy to answer any of your questions. Um, always, forever. Like this is so important. Um, and it doesn't mean that the baranda has to stop. Hell no. Yeah. <laughs> Hell My no. Mom been the biggest barandera. <laughs> my whole life like everyone oh, yeah. still on the dance floor still is still in, she could stay up too she could stay up like all night That's I'm like, true. Oh, doing so this? true yeah music yes. good music. so it's true we were talking alejandro and i were talking about yesterday they're talking about reggaeton bachata and salsa and how you just have these d- amazing dance parties even with mm-hmm. just yourself so it is I possible. Know, isn't that sad? Verified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you yeah. get close when you're dancing those. Like I do wonder right. about that stuff. I, I feel sad. Yeah. About, like the hugging yeah. and the touching and them. But like we'll have a whole consent talk now, right? We'll have a whole new right. Yes. <laughs> like we consent. Will. We're like, will that be just like an obsolete conversation? Because like no one can touch it anymore. <laughs> so it's like right. yes, yeah, it's we <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um jessica like thank you so much for sharing all of this um just i just want to touch upon two things first of all speaking personally for me but maybe alejandra can relate to this because we're both actually mm. the oldest daughters in our families mm, yes um, i have five younger so like we're all girls in my family i'm Aww. the oldest sister to five other girls wow um, and as I mentioned, you know, I had like a very religious, like socially conservative family. But since I was around 12 or so, I've been struggling mm-hmm. with a lot of harmful, addictive behaviors um, mm-hmm. that like I that had to figure out by myself. Right. Um, and I obviously I'm obviously in a much better place now, but I've never you know, heard someone else talk about it from a similar background, because if you ever talk about any of, you know, substances or anything, you mostly hear it from usually like a white perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never really yeah. much with, you know, not only am I dealing with, I'm fighting with myself, I'm fighting with, you know, society, my friends, but also family, because, you know, family is, that's a whole other struggle. It's a whole other, you know, talking about being the oldest daughter um, or just a daughter mm-hmm. um, in an immigrant household is a whole other thing. And, and you know, mm-hmm. going back to my childhood, like I, being the oldest, I was kind of conditioned to never show my feelings. I would never cry, um, mm. never, you know, being emotional. Just if I got angry, I would just have to keep it inside and figure it out by myself. And as you said, like, the harmful addictive behaviors are, it's escapism. Mm-hmm. It, it's a way to cope yeah. with it because you don't know how else to do that and so yeah um this yeah. has been the first time ever I've heard anyone yeah. similar to my background that I can relate to like so it's it's so validating to hear it from someone else so I just want to thank you for that but also mm-hmm. that means on so a second much. note 
on a Thank second you. note that um right now people are struggling and you know for me mm-hmm. it's something that as you said like you have coping mechanisms that you develop to kind of combat the urges. And for me, you know, for me, it's always been a routine and exercise. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've gotten mad. As you said, I've I've become angry and resentful, you know, like seeing Mm -hmm. people have FaceTime parties or talking about productivity, you know, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. like, I'm, it's like, why can't I be normal? Like, I'm so mad that I can't do this. Like now I need to refigure kind of my almost like my life out it feels because it's like mm-hmm. if this this was my coping mechanism it's not like just something that I like to do but it's the only way I know to be okay mm-hmm. um and I think yeah. that right now it can be chaotic to people so I, I just really want to thank you so yeah. much because of these two reasons especially Thank yeah, and I just so yeah, and I just wanted to add something. Um, like the same thing as Susan. This is my first time actually hearing someone with the same background as me talking about this because mm-hmm. I feel like for me, one of the similar experience that I can relate to you, and I actually cry. I don't know why I cry mm-hmm. in every episode, <laughs> is because um, when my parents got divorced when I was twelve, I didn't know how to you know like how to heal. From that, it was very painful. And I experienced going through, you know, I saw myself drinking. I saw myself smoking. And I had that one person who told me, like, you're not, you you know, like, you're better than this or you can do better. Just don't do this. But you said, you know, like, people in our community see that as a bad thing. I, after a year of doing it, like, I completely stopped. And then now that I'm older, when I go to parties, I'm always the one that, like, they always say, oh, why don't you drink? But for me, when people say, like, why don't you drink? It's a reminder of me when I was 12. You know, I was literally a little mm-hmm. kid with the with the beer, with with the cigarette in my hand because my parents were getting divorced. And mm. I was, you know, like, I didn't know how to, you know, how can you heal that pain? You know, I feel like people mm-hmm. who went through divorces knowing as an older sister, as you know, as the oldest, like I didn't know how to expect. I, I was seeing my family disappear. Uh, then I migrated here and I was like, well, I don't see my dad anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like how you say, you know, like for me it was to hear your story and then like I can relate to that, even mm-hmm. though, you know, like I, I don't drink anymore and I was able to heal like when I was very young. But still, mm-hmm. like when people make those comments, like you know, like let's say, like my my one time, my brother got home drunk, and my mom was like, "Por qué no puedes hacer como tu hermana que no toma?" In my head, was like, mm-hmm. "You don't know what I went through in order That's for right. me to not go through because <gasps> your divorce I know. did hurt me." You know, mm-hmm. like the divorce did hurt me, and it hurt me in many, many, you know, yeah, many ways. Things, mm-hmm. yeah. I totally. Mi papá dice lo mismo. He's like, uh, we have a cousin, my other cousin on my dad's side who can't stop too. And um, I tried to talk to him about it. And he's like, bueno, tú tienes un carácter fuerte. I'm like, dad, it has nothing to do with that. Like, I love you. And I sure do. But like, that is not, it's not that Hans doesn't have or. Uh, you know what I mean like it's not that easy it's just it's it's very difficult and and I think that because our parents are normally experiencing such like um 
the stress and pain and trauma. I mean, you're coming with so much, but I think like there's this big, um, there is this congratulatory like martyrdom associated with a lot of our parents where like, oh, well, you just don't drink, you know, that's a silly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you stop right. that, you know, even though like their parents, their deals, their, you know, everyone, they've watched people suffer with this because like the shit that people do and the ways that they hurt other people and mostly themselves, no one wants to do that. Like, yeah, we yeah. want a paranda, but like what happens? Nobody wants to do that. No one feels okay doing that. You feel horrible doing that. Um, and and I know like a lot of my family members have hurt people while they're doing it. And I acknowledge that wholly, especially as a woman, especially because my other cousin was killed by her partner 10 years ago. Like, and that yeah. is a huge issue for me. Right. Um, but I also can understand like, this, this is all of these things are so intertwined together for us and they are. it's just because we've left Honduras or Ecuador or we're not kids anymore and we're not being physically abused or we're not with the man who abused us anymore like that's not when the trauma starts uh, stops rather. like that's when the work people starts before you were born mm-hmm. before yeah. you were born like, we have this idea it's like bueno you know ustedes nacieron aquí or like I'm right there what's happening, you know, you're good, go to school and look at all this stuff you got you, you know, it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> right. you're like, oh my god, I'm traumatized. But uh, I think that that's sort of someone has talked about, and I think it was really lovely, like we all have our generational tasks, and this is a really beautiful one that that you both are telling me. Like, I give you so much credit, both of you, because I clearly did not get the memo, you know, from God, universe, other people <laughs> um, who told me to stop. Like, I kept going. Oh, stop. <laughs> no, but seriously, I try. Sometimes I see people, like my friend the other day, she celebrated 10 years sober and she's young. She's younger than me. I was like, how the fuck did you change that that early? Right. Like, no way. Right. But I started, you know, I started in my teens. But mm-hmm. what did people, my, my, my cousin started, yeah, my uncle was a really bad alcoholic. He used to give him beers. And yeah. then, oh my God. Oh, that yeah. was my dad. I'm so sorry. Like, I literally yeah. just, my mom, okay, so this is the thing. My mom, one of the biggest fights that my mom had when my mom and my dad was together was because my dad used to give us beer. And yeah. for my dad was like, es que primero que lo traten entre, enfrente de nosotros, no que lo vayan a hacer con amigos. What is, I know. Oh my God. Like me and my brother, we always have the thing. Do you remember when we got beer? Like my dad gave me my first cigarette at the age of eight, just to oh try in front God. of you. Oh yes. Yes. Oh this is just, my, sorry. It's just like, when you said no. that, I was like, oh my God, yes. That's what the research indicates that men, Latino for Latinos, men way more than women will admit to drinking. Although most of us don't think that we drink um, in any kind of problematic way, but a lot of that is attributed to religion and things like that. And like my one mm-hmm. experience that um, at AA, like Spanish language AA, was pretty. It was really, really intense. I got really upset when the conversation, like you both have said, 
had been like solely appropriated by white women. And recently, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of news outlets and studies were focused on how like uh, people are like, oh, mommy juice and, you know, like white girl wasted and things like that that look real cute. Mm-hmm. And now they're finding that it's a serious problem. Um, and most women are drinking alcoholically like every day, like just to show up and be moms and shit like that. But um, the focus on these stories, which I've heard so much about, and the fact that, you know, these are the women that write the books and start the self-help and all this stuff um, was sort of bugging me. And this one woman wrote a book and the last chapter of it was like, it was called like activism, alcohol and some other bullshit. And she goes on to describe like all the ways that black and brown bodies are oppressed by um, addiction and, and, you know, the system. And like does nothing to talk about how like we're part of the solution or that resources are different. And actually I found out, I did my own research and my partner who's like the best researcher was like, (laughs) it's an indigenous, it's a first nations practice. They actually well before anything was established um, with AA group therapy, um, indigenous peoples had sobriety circles. And so we all were making alcohol like we are. It's not that like, you know, the colonizers introduced alcohol to us. We were making our own, um, but we were using it for like um, rituals and things like this. But some people, especially through all the trauma of colonization and stuff, began to abuse alcohol. But once those people um, suffered in that way, and they healed, they were sort of anointed to be the healers and the leaders, right? So mm. it became a beautiful thing that people healed through sharing their stories. And it was a sacred practice. And I thought, wow, I really like to give like platform to this. So I tried right. and tried and tried to like um, find out about it. So I was like, you know, no one picked up my story. So I was really resentful and pissed. And then, right. um, and then I, um, I started going to A in Spanish language and my, my boyfriend and I went to San Francisco. I went to this group, this group, and it was fucking lit. Y'all like, it was <laughs> I was like, I'm never scared. I've been in some situation. I would, I was like, Oh, like get bus. You know what I mean? Like, so right. the thing was they sort of, they got me to share. And rape is part of my story and I'm a survivor. And before I ever started drinking, I was at a party and I was given root hypnol and I was put in a room and like, I mean, it was the deepest, deepest, like secret. And, and actually it was like just this whole criminal enterprise was discovered that these boys were, were roofing girls and raping them. But the boy who was running it um, committed suicide a year after when he was going to be found out. And like, I just Mm -hmm. didn't have the kind of family or the kind of, I just didn't say anything. And that stayed with me for like more than a decade. And sobriety. Wow. So I don't always share that story, but I do sometimes. And I don't know what drove me there that day, but I did say that, that. Uh, that happened to me and I was carrying a lot of trauma and blah, blah, A man gets up after in Spanish. You know, like your tío who like drinks too much and then he can't stop talking at the party at the family function? 
Yeah. Yeah. And he, like, believes that everything he's saying is, like, you know, just gospel. And he's, like, really into what he's saying. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. So that's this guy. And he gets up and he's like, ¿Saben qué? Cuando las mujeres beben, las violan. And I almost, like, I almost died. I almost, like, I was so angry. But, like, I realized how much expectation I had going into that room that I wanted to see Latinos getting sober. I wanted to hear other Latinos carrying the same message that I fucking hear the white, rich people that I go to in New York with. I wanted to Mm -hmm. them to understand the things that I do. I wanted them to not be misogynistic assholes. I wanted them to not, like, crosstalk, which is a thing where, like... If someone shares something, you shouldn't then say something that's like, oh, they're there to that person. You know what I mean? You, you let that person right. experience and that is their experience and you listen and that's it. You talk about what you need to talk about. You never talk about what someone else has just shared. Mm-hmm. That's like, mm-hmm. it's such a violation, you know? Mm-hmm. I got so upset. My boyfriend came and picked me up. I had I didn't realize it was to a, a two-hour meeting. I, they're normally one hour. So when I got up, they were like, ah... Prima, donde, te, donde vas? Like, don't go. Blah, blah. I was like, oh, I didn't know it was a two-hour meeting. They got all upset and, like, they're like, vete a la mierda. And I was like, oh, my God. She was like, oh, there's a lot of abandonment there. And I was like, oh, yeah, they felt rejected by me. But, um, so I was so upset. And my boyfriend was like, maybe just take a little chill, like take a little break. You know, I had been going to like a lot of meetings and I was like, no, I'm like, no. And so the next day I found another meeting um, midday and like they were so lovely to me. And like mm. I told them about my experience at the other grupo and they're like, oh, I see, hermana, no vayas a ese grupo. <laughs> and they're like, I see ese grupo. Hmm. You know, and I, so they wanted me to share too. And I, I felt comfortable sharing and I told them what I'd said the day before. And I said, I just have to say something because I was like, we need this, you know, Latinas need this. And there should be no place where I don't feel safe coming in this, these rooms as a woman, as a Latina. Like, you guys need to hold us down. And it, it, I don't feel safe here. And it, I, I said, I was like, Te tengo que decir que los hombres violan porque los hombres violan. Punto. That is mm. it. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you ever, I don't even care. And I, that is all, that is not a principle, any of that shit. But I was just talking to my community at that point. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. there is one other woman in here and me. And there's a reason. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, they let me say, I was like crying, you know? And, um, and uh, this man stepped up after and he looked at me and he said, ¿Sabe qué, Jessica? Lo mismo me pasó a mí. And he told his story. Yeah. 
And it was so powerful. I was just like, you know, if I had taken this one experience of this one group, which by the way, happens in all the English speaking groups too, you know, this is not a perfect utopia. Like people are sick and trying to get better. That's why we're in AA. So never expect that you're going to come into this, like, you know, like, like warm, fuzzy group. It is generally a wonderful place that I advocate for and they got me sober and it's it's that and so many other things but you need people like-minded people for sure but if I had taken that as some kind of like that one experience as like a microcosm of where we are in this conversation like I would have been sunk you know most of the Mm -hmm. people who got to that rooms are because they've been fucked by the system for doing shit that everybody does like they were drinking drunk outside from a bar and they throw them in the can for days and then they give them these huge um they they can't get out on what are they called the bail they can't make bail so they stay and then they get put in the system especially in san francisco it's horrendous and then um, then then they're ordered to go to aa and then some people feel something and others don't and the women are told to go to church and so wow we got to stop this nonsense. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we got to stop this nonsense. So I went to a women's group there with like older women. I told them about what happened in that first group. And even the woman, middle-aged woman, probably like the age of our parents. And she's like, bueno, por ir a la boca, al boca, a la boca del lobo. That's what she said to me. Por ir al, al boca del lobo. So she what? So what? it's everywhere. It's internalized misogyny. It's miso- it like mm. it's everywhere. We all need to take care of each other. And so I guess the younger women, the Latinas, have they had a big meeting on the West Coast about about that, about how to make women feel more safe and secure in these um, Spanish language meetings because they often don't. So they just end up going to the English speaking meetings and they would like that solidarity, like you both have said, of feeling like, well, I would love to talk to women who've lived my experience. So whenever whenever I'm in the rooms, I always make a point of talking about my experience from my lens. And oftentimes mm-hmm. black and brown women will say, thank you for talking about how you got here because it's different for us. And it is. Mm. So I think that if we had more of a space where like, first of all, we could understand that while not all of us understand where our indigenous roots are, when we're from Central America, you have them. Um, And whether or not, like not in a way to appropriate anything, but for a way to understand that we are not just part of like the the statistics and the oppression our people had a solution for all of this um that Mm. is ultimately as far as every kind of therapeutic medical solution towards addiction group therapy is the most tried and true and has the best results and that is something that sobriety circles invented um we take pride in that and then and then create those for ourselves. And it doesn't even have to be addiction based because a lot of people have a problem saying like, yeah, I, I'm mm. um, so maybe you don't even have to say that. But like, yeah, I would love to have sobriety circles, you know, like learn about those rituals and those practices, not to appropriate them, but to honor them, to give us a little bit of a sense of pride and to educate us as to, OK, 
if this is happening, then maybe I should be X, Y, Z, you know, and something from a place of like total non-judgment, like giving resources and access to people who need it, who don't just like end up almost killing themselves on the highway like me or end up behind the wheel of a car like my partner's dad who who died behind the wheel of a car because he was drinking, you know? So, or like my poor cousin, pobrecito, you know, like we, we have to, um, we have to get, and you know, not all of us are as strong as you guys. I think you guys should lead it. Since like the whole thing, like, I'm going to keep going. It's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. <gasps> we just are, everyone has their own journeys. And I mean, the thing is, yeah. I think, um, you know, once you get to stopping whatever it is, that's a whole other journey itself, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it's like an ongoing dialogue that doesn't really end. It can, it can maybe okay. even follow you for the rest of your life. And that's okay. That's yeah. okay. Yeah, it's totally okay. You guys, this was so wonderful. Wow, I'm like beaming. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, guys. You don't understand. <laughs> I'm so um, happy to be a part of this. I'm really, really honored. This is so wonderful. I couldn't have thought of a better place to to start talking about this and with the people who um, have my heart totally. Like Centroamericanos. I'm so proud, yeah. of <laughs> proud of us. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. Don't forget to check out our website at centralamericanvoices.com where you can subscribe to our mailing list. Also follow us on Instagram at Sentown Voices Podcast and on Twitter at Sentown Voices Pod for more updates. And don't forget to come back next week to hear our newest episode. Bye.